This is a Federal News Network podcast. Most employees at the National Science Foundation can now telework four days a week if they want. Ink dried on the agency's collective bargaining agreement with the American Federation of Government Employees. NSF also added opportunities for remote work and a new student loan repayment program. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman got details from NSF's Deputy Chief Human Capital Officer, Bill Maliska. We had undergone a couple different efforts to collect employee perspective in December of 2020, March of 2021 had a work group to look at how we could expand flexibilities in the summer of 2021. And then as we were engaging with our AFGE partners all along through there, coinciding with that was actually the the midpoint negotiations for our collective bargaining agreement. So the, the stars aligned perfectly to have all of those conversations coincide. And as we went into you know, the fall and getting ready for a re-entry in the spring of 2022, we were really pinning down with our labor partners you know, what, what the terms are go- were going to be for our new telework and remote work um, posture. And then we uh, implemented those in October uh, of this year as we, you know, we, we moved into our new policy. We ratified our collective bargaining agreement. So it was a lot of work, a lot of engagement of our workforce, a lot of management discussions, but everything along the way uh, was as deliberate and as inclusive as we could make it. So you mentioned that you were collecting employees' perspective. Can you tell me a little bit more what you heard from your employees about telework? First of all, we heard that people were interested in expanded flexibilities. In fact, there was a lot of interest in remote work, but also in just expanded telework. And it was very consistent. So the numbers were super consistent with almost every survey we did with people's desire for those things. The other thing is their biggest concern was there not, I mean, the technology we had solved for, right? We had adopted Zoom and Teams right at about the same time as the pandemic started. So people quickly got comfortable working in a virtual environment, but their concerns were around maintaining connection and culture with their their colleagues. And this is actually borne out in a lot of the HR uh, literature now is that by reducing physical proximity to coworkers, it also oftentimes reduces emotional proximity or, you know, connection to other people. And so that's something that our, our, our workforce voiced uh, along the way as well. So there was interest in expanded flexibilities, but then again, there was also this concern or what were the organizational costs of, of expanding those flexibilities. That's a really interesting point. If you're going to be virtual all day, mm-hmm. it's harder to connect with your colleagues. Is that something that you guys have made efforts to address or what are some ways that you help employees connect over, you know, virtual means? We knew that we had to ensure that our new employees coming in connected with the organization. So we really doubled down on our onboarding experience. In fact, our onboarding experience has actually won awards from professional uh, associations that also cover private sector. But we make the onboarding experience more than just the first week and filling out your benefit forms and meeting people. We really focus on a year-long experience where we facilitate networking events and roundtables for people to tap into different topics that, uh, you know, their first week or two or month on the job, they might not think of. But as they get into their jobs, things like performance management or, um, you know, how to access mentoring and coaching or how to navigate and connect outside of your area. So we have these roundtables for new employees. 
And we've seen real positive uh, response to that from the folks coming into the organization. Now, for the folks that are here, of course, you know, we really want to ensure that people maintain their affiliation, their association, their their connection with the organization. And so we've really been trying to collect and see best practices. We've had a series over the last six months of listening sessions for staff as well as for supervisors to really share their experiences, you know, what's worked, where they maybe ran into some some hurdles or some some friction and being able to effectively collaborate and connect uh, virtually. And so we've really tried to focus on those kinds of conversations within our organization. We're also now rolling out something uh, called our team norming exercise, where we recognize that uh, in a distributed uh, workforce, which is a blending of on-site, off-site, hybrid, you know, kind of physically present, but also virtually present, that culture doesn't always convey through the things we hang on our walls, the things we have in our offices, the things that we see, you know, around the elevators. And so we're really looking at microcultures within our teams and, and with intent going out and facilitating team norming conversations about what does it mean to be a citizen of NSF on this team and what should we expect of each other? And really entering into the conversation that's facilitated to establish those operating principles. Like, how do we want to um, function as a team? Not terms in terms of work processes or things like that, but the people part of it. Communications and collaboration. So what should we expect of each other? And so that's a campaign that we're going out across the foundation uh, over the next couple months to really ensure that people are engaging in how they connect with each other with intent versus just letting it happen organically. With all that focus on building culture, expanding telework, do you anticipate or hope that that's going to have an impact on employee retention or just the applicant pools that you're able to reach at NSF? Absolutely, absolutely. But but I will share our employees have a lot of expectations and we weren't, you know, always able to step in and meet every single one of them, right? And so People are starting back on site. The end of October, we started, and they're reconnecting with folks, and they're shifting their own expectations as well as folks are working with their new telework agreements and reshifting what normal looks like for them. And we think the flexibilities, we're competitive with the rest of the uh, federal workplace market. We are competitive with the private sector. Are we going out and letting 80, 90% of our folks be remote? Well, no, we're not because the way we work and and our culture and our collaboration isn't ready for that yet. But we are offering pretty much the maximum flexibility that we can under the rules we've got, under the expectations, of course, of the administration, as well as, you know, in what's right for us and our culture. So we do think we're competitive. We have not experienced a real retention issue. In fact, I think that as people are working in their new arrangements under our new policies, for the most part, they're they're really realizing the level of flexibility that we've offered goes way beyond anything they would have ever expected prior to the pandemic. You mentioned that, you know, you're not quite ready to expand remote work as much as 80 or 90 percent, which would be a lot. But if you were going to think about expanding remote work opportunities in the future, how would you measure when NSF would be ready for a further shift? We are figuring that out right now. Our commitment is to 
really invest in evaluating you know, how we're doing as an organization over uh, the, this fiscal year to really look for those opportunities. There may be some mission opportunities. For example, you know, one of Director Ponchanoffin's big charges to the organization is to broaden participation in the STEM workforce. As part of that, you know, we are trying to engage more emerging research institutions, minority-serving institutions, historically Black colleges, universities, groups that haven't always participated in our workforce through the Rotator Program. And by offering some of these flexibilities, not only are we potentially able to recruit folks that may or may not always have the flexibility to come and work in D.C. On our, as a rotator, but also have then NSF representatives in areas where we may not always have had representation and being able to meet with the science community in those areas and really build those bridges. And so there's mission drivers there as well as, you know, again, we want to offer flexibilities that are supportable for our employees. You know, one of Dr. Ponchanathan's big charges also was to make sure that everything we committed to from a flexibility perspective was durable, that it wasn't a commitment that we would have to rethink down the road. So we're looking at the commitments we're making, how we can expand those, as well as tying the types of flexibilities that we offer also to the mission of NSF. I wanted to talk through a couple other pieces of the CBA that you have agreed on with AFGE. One of those provisions was expanding your after-hours program. Can you explain what really changed there and what led to your decision to expand it? Our after-hours program has been in place for a number of years now, and its original intent was to help more entry-level or earlier in their careers in the organization. So, you know, the lower GS-level employees to have tuition sponsorship so that we would help them pay for their bachelor's degree. And we expanded that up to the GS 13 level with our CBA in 2020. Well, one of the things that we we looked at was we are a learning organization. We're an organization whose mission is based on building capabilities of the nation in terms of STEM, as well as ensuring that you know we have we have learning built into our own way of working. And as a result, you know, we came to the table with the union both in agreement that this is a great opportunity to put those values in play through our after hours program. So what we did was we expanded this to be available uh, as tuition support to any non-executive employee. So this is up to GS-15. And in our case, we also have um, STEM employees on a different system than the GS. But it would be also available up to a terminal degree, up to a PhD. So we really want to ensure that our people are, um, if they're committed to their own development and growth and learning, then NSF will be alongside them and help them uh, by committing ourselves to being part of that growth and learning and development. And we also see this as a great way to have those long-term commitments be there for not only retention, but also helping them to to become leaders in NSF, either through practice or through actual moving into leadership. Another new part of the collective bargaining agreement was to implement a student loan repayment program. Is that something new to NSF and why was that added to the CBA? That is actually brand new to NSF. We've not had a student loan repayment program. And again, part of that was people who have made prior commitments to their own development and education and are coming into public service. 
we're not always as competitive in terms of salary or other incentives as the private sector. And so this is a way for people to have us support them in the commitments they've made to being ready to serve through an incentive to help them you know, pay for their student loans, the, the debt that they've incurred getting to where they are in their career. So this is new for us. It's a commitment we're making to uh, support our employees and actually be an incentive for people to come in and work for the federal government. And one other piece that I wanted to touch on was the alternative dispute resolutions pilot that's being moved to a permanent program now. What led to the decision to make that a permanent program? So that was introduced into our 2020 collective bargaining agreement as a pilot. And it was successful. We've had a number of positive interventions with, you know, just disputes that happen naturally in organizations. We all agreed that it was best to remove the pilot and just make it a permanent fixture within NSF as a tool for employees or supervisors to use to to bring to the table those things that just they, they need a third party to help talk through and you know find solutions for. And, and so we, we're committed to that as part of a you know a broader positive work environment that we want to continue to reinforce. And other than those few that I just touched on, is there anything else that you're still working through with AFGE or other things that you're hearing from your employees where you're maybe looking to make further changes in the future? Well, you know, the one other thing we did change is we are offering a maxi flex schedule for all of our employees now. So giving them more flexibility to construct the work day and the work schedule that they want to have. We had a lot of success during the pandemic with people that need to take an hour or two off in the middle of the day and either go to the gym, take a walk, run errands, you know, clear their head and come back. And what we're trying to do is create a platform for people to be able to have the flexibilities to, to come to work and do their best work, you know, whether that's the time of day that they need to work or the flexibility to have to be where they do their best work, whether it's in person or remote at their homes. So again, that's part of that. You know, we're always uh, looking for opportunities to to continue to drive NSF as a best place to work. I mean, we've seen about eight years of steady year-on-year improvements in our federal employee viewpoint score surveys. And so, you know, we're always looking at new ideas, new ways of just creating the environment and the culture where people lean in and really want to come and, and, and work and stay and grow and develop. We've got all kinds of ideas flourishing around, so there's no shortage of ideas, and we always are engaging our union partners as we're moving along and thinking through, shaping, and then implementing those ideas. Bill Maliska, Deputy Chief Human Capital Officer at the National Science Foundation, speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. There's more to the interview. Find it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Shane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. 
Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took... Um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on it. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances Um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, 
I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, Jane, it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I, 
had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, So there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. The world is always on. But you shouldn't be. Put junk sleep to bed. During Mattress Firm's Dream Sember Sale, get a king for the price of a queen or a queen for a twin and save up to $700 on Sealy. Only at Mattress Firm.